0: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us, generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher. It takes a lot of chutzpah to open your own production company in Hollywood. In the late 60s and early 70s, with a new wave of movies being produced and distributed independently, it seemed like it just might work out for Dennis Friedland and Chris Dewey. They'd found some success producing English versions of softcore Swedish films, and even produced a movie that got nominated for an Oscar for Adapted Writing, and gave Susan Sarandon her doe-eyed film debut. That movie was Joe. But by 1979, a string of failed features meant that the duo had to bail out. And fast. So they sold their company, Canon Films, to two Israeli cousins, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. The two had already produced, and in one case directed, some bonkers movies in Israel. Like the bright and exuberant film, The Apple, which Alicia seems like something you would be into. Once again, have not seen it. Seems what? like I would be into
1: it. <laughs> oh, you yeah. would be into it. It's Xanadu Okay, Yeah, I will get
0: on that. And the wildly popular Lemon Popsicle, which Cam seems like something you would have
1: seen. You know what? I haven't seen Lemon Popsicle, but I've seen uh, The Last American Virgin, which is a pretty much direct translation of Lemon Popsicle. I mean, why that movie stands out so much is that it's, like, without considering American culture at all a direct translation of (laughs) an Israeli film, so you're like, wow, I didn't know that American teens went to, uh, you know, sex workers so frequently, but... (laughs)
0: Yeah, sure. Well, Golan and Globus wanted to try their hand at the American market. And so they bought Canon Films. Um, I'm sure we'll touch back on Canon several times throughout the entirety of this podcast. But for now, we'll focus on 1986, which was a huge year for Canon in terms of their growth as a company, as well as as a controversial figure. Globus and Golan in 86 were riding high. They'd had a number of successes with the box office, including with films like Breakin', and their successful run of sequels based on already proven properties, like the Death Wish franchise. Uh, they'd also been nominated for an Oscar in 85 with their movie Runaway Train. Their theory was that Hollywood was all talk and not enough action, so if they made movies at a rapid enough pace and just kept releasing them, they were sure to run circles around the rest of the industry. See, in their hearts, even though Menachem Golan was a director, he and Globus were salesmen, not artists. So in 1985, they showed up at the Cannes Film Festival with this massive pamphlet of one-page ads for movies, 90% of which hadn't even entered into pre-production. They then showed it to distributors and said which ones would you want to buy? And those are the movies that got made. And and what's wild is that there's some movies in there that got made that say they star one actor, but the actual movie has someone else in the lead. Like uh, 52 Pickup says it stars Stallone, but it ends up starring Roy Scheider. They're almost yeah. the same, right?
1: It's on Hollywood Suite right now <laughs> if you want to yeah, watch it. Yeah.
0: Well, it's also important to know that while Canon was pushing to produce more high-end materials made with auteur-era directors like Jean-Luc Godard's version of King Lear... And Zeffirelli's extravagant all opera version of Othello, mm. featuring world renowned tenor Placido Domingo in blackface in the title mm-hmm. role. But despite all of the aims at prestige, the 32 movies that Canon released in 86 are mostly their usual exploitative schlock. And that's where they got into the most controversy with the movie The Delta Force. I was talking to my partner about this and he was like, Delta Force, that was one of my favorites when I was a kid. Uh, Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin come in and there's like a plane full of hostages and they take out the bad guys with rocket launchers. It was really cool. He did not, however, realize this was based on an actual Mm -hmm. hostage situation, and they started making the film in Israel at the same time the hostage situation was still going on, not knowing how it was going to be resolved. You can't sleep on stuff like that. You gotta go. Go, 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 go. No, no, because that's how exploitation works. The actual situation involved TWA flight 847. Uh, What happened was that two Arabic-speaking Lebanese men, um, they were allegedly part of Hezbollah, but Hezbollah denied any affiliation to the event, so it's unclear on if they were part of an organized group. They took a plane full of 147 people hostage in Athens. Uh, It was this horrific ordeal that lasted for two weeks. They beat the hostages, executed one of them, and threw him out of the plane onto the apron, forced... The pilots to fly back and forth between Beirut and Algiers. Uh, they separated all the passengers with Jewish-sounding last names, like like really, really. Oh, horrible I saw stuff. a movie about this. There was a
2: movie at Berlin a few years ago starring um, Rosamund Pike about this hostage situation. I don't even think it got released, but
1: the film was released. It's called Seven Days in Yes, Entebbe.
2: I definitely sat through that. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like seven
0: days.
1: Twenty-four percent on Rotten Tomatoes. You are not alone, Malaysia.
0: Well, that movie at least sounds slightly more accurate than what happened in the Delta Force, Mm -hmm. Uh, because the real hostage event ended with Israel releasing over seven hundred Shia prisoners, but they maintained that had nothing to do with the hostage situation. Um, One of the hijackers was arrested later, but the other one went free. In the Delta Force, it's not just two guys; it's like a whole squad of just repulsively stereotypical Arabic-speaking terrorists. They're eventually defeated in this incredibly violent way by Chuck Norris. Than his gang. At one point, Chuck Norris uses a rocket launcher from a motorbike. That's apparently a crowning moment. Victor Canby said, The Delta Force will be the 1986 film all others will have to beat for sheer, unashamed, hilariously vulgar vaingloriousness. Sure. Did I mention that the movie was directed by Menachem Golan himself? Well, if you want to know more about canon films, there are three documentaries out there. Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of Canon Films, made in 2014. And that one kind of feels like fanboys trying to be unbiased. Um, There's the Go-Go Boys, which was rushed into production and released before Electric Boogaloo because Globus and Golan caught wind of the documentary and wanted their own version. But my personal favorite is a 1986 doc made by the BBC called The Last Moguls, which features actual footage of Menachem on the phone in business deals, including ones where he's trying to recruit famous directors to make pictures for him, like Peter Bogdanovich, where Menachem said, he's a loser working with losers and he needs to get with the winners. Oh, wow. Bogdanovich didn't end up working for Canon, but another high-profile director did. Toby Hooper was fresh off Poltergeist when he was signed to a three-picture deal. He promised he would make Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And we're going to talk about that in a later episode. But he had free reign on the other two pictures. The movies he chose to make clearly reflect his love of the classic B-movie. And I can imagine him as a young person racing home to catch one of those movies presented by local TV hosts with like creepy character names like Morgus the Magnificent, Muna Lisa, or Sir Graves Gasly. Can I give a shout out to another one? Of course. Goularty. A.K.A.
2: Ernie Anderson, the father of Paul Thomas Anderson. What? I, I just learned recently from a friend of the show that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's dad was one of these like midnight movie hosts on local television. Mm-hmm. He was like a That's real hilarious. legend named Gulardi. <laughs>
1: a very weird goularty fact Uh, Drew Carey always wore a shirt of him how do you know this (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's how I knew who he was the
0: other one I know about from the 50s is Zachary Zachary was apparently like a really big deal he was syndicated yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. so just wild and I mean I get it because there would be something magic about that especially when you're a young person like rushing home or like turning it on late at night past your bedtime and being like what sort of weird stuff I'm gonna see and the 80s are full of these B-movie remakes and tributes and they're made lovingly and artfully by masters. Think about Carpenter's The Thing or Cronenberg's The Fly and and Chuck Russell's The Blob. Mm -hmm. Classic horror director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist had all the potential in the world to make his own tribute to the genre. Working from a script based on a classic 50s B-movie, Invaders from Mars seems to be an attempt to create a child's horror version of one of those movies But it ends up being almost Ken Russellian in nature at some points. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien, is one of the Mm co-writers behind the script. So that makes sense, that there would be some vagina stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. So let's get into (laughs) Invaders from Mars and uh, Toby Hooper's second movie from his three-picture deal with Canon. Because the first one is Life Force. Leonard Maltin describes it as berserk. I made it about halfway through, and it is, in fact... (laughs) berserk it is nuts
1: uh it rules (laughs) becky i don't know what you're talking about Was a, an all-nude vampire lady not good oh, Dan- enough Well, it's just, it
0: just flips through so many different genres that it's like, sure. what is happening? And it, Should be I said, love... also
1: written by Dan O'Bannon. Yes, uh, yes, yeah.
0: that's right. So, I mean, one of the things that I love so much, and, and this is Toby Hooper very much collaborating with the same people for his three-picture mm-hmm. deal, because that was yes. Life Force, Invaders from Mars, and the third is Texas Chainsaw Massacre yes. 2, which he promised he would do them.
1: Yes, that's, that's how he got the deal, right? He promised he'd make a, yes. a Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel. And yeah. then it's also worth saying that this film stars the ex wife and child of the writer of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. <laughs> and Kit Carson
0: is... is in this as well. Yeah, so that's uh... the, yeah.
1: It's a strange strange bedfellows made Invaders from Mars. I
2: couldn't, uh, I couldn't see Kit Carson in the film, but I was trying to look for him, and I couldn't. I'm sure maybe he's in the background. Is
0: he actually an actor in it? So he's in the background in um, Invaders from Mars. He's not in yeah. Texas yes, Chainsaw yeah, Massacre. No, yeah, he, he
1: wrote Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just as in Invaders from Mars. But yes, his yeah. ex-wife,
0: yeah. we should also say,
2: is Karen Black who yes. we love so much and We're talked about <laughs> starring in
0: uh day of the locust
1: i can say my love for karen black perhaps does not extend to hunter carson her child. no no <laughs> but
0: before we get into that let's talk a little bit about the plot of invaders mm. from mars uh cam do you want to do this one
1: sure i mean uh it's it's right there on the tin uh, <laughs> a, a child uh wakes up in the middle of the night Thinks he sees a UFO land. He, he's also kind of a, you know, a, a scaredy cat child. I think he has nightmares and stuff before the UFO lands. Uh, a bit of a dreamer. Uh, his parents, uh, <laughs> Timothy Bottom and Lorraine Newman of SNL, they're like, oh, don't worry about it. And his dad's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry, kid. I'll, I'll go check it out. Uh, and then um, in the morning, his father seems strange. It kind of, from there, continues the post- Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think also mini trend of essentially body snatch movies like Strange Invaders, like The Thing, like The Martian Chronicles, like even Cocoon, strangely, is <laughs> aliens pretending to be human. So slowly, the kid is noticing more and more people are weird. Uh, again, like we say, it's a bit of a, like it's meant to be from a kid's perspective, so the people are very weird, including probably the best turn in the film, Louise Fletcher as his evil teacher. Yeah. Uh, eventually both his parents are quite quickly turned into aliens uh, and he can only turn to the, the kindly school nurse played by karen black uh who luckily believes him well uh, occasionally
0: she's like please don't just be a crazy child she mm-hmm. actively says to him hold it i do not understand a single word you're saying come on i'll show you
2: <sighs> not just a crazy child, are you?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she entertains him, and he manages to give proof that when people are changed, there's something wrong with the back of their necks. They
2: wear band-aids uh, and over she, their necks. she
1: notices that the kid is not lying. Yeah. Uh, and she also notices, I mean, the, the joke that's in a lot of a lot of critics are like these people are not acting normally they are acting like weird zombies it is not invasion of the body snatchers where they're pretty normal i think
2: you know things are really bad when the kid's watching his mom eat uh, she's like we're gonna have hamburgers for lunch and oh, then yeah. starts eating raw ground meat with a bunch of salt on it.
0: not hungry david you feel all right
1: Yes, Lorraine Newman is having a lot of fun too. I yeah. will say, and or where she makes the weird burnt food and is like, "Eat up!" The she bacon. like cooks all the bacon till it's burnt. Yeah. Um Yeah. So the people are like weird zombies, but then I, I think it kind of goes where you wouldn't think, where it is very true to its '50s roots, and then it's actually about Karen Black and the child rousing the military into action against uh, a series of increasingly wacky creatures including, you know, big kind of meatball monsters and a little uh, goofy alien and Yeah, so uh, the little little goofy alien
0: looks like Crane from Teenage Mutant (gasps) Ninja Turtles. I was thinking the same thing. And these are all Stan Winston creatures and creations. And Mm. the amount of work that went into figuring out how they were going to work with like a little person operating the mouth on the back of a stunt performer who's Mm -hmm. in the bottom half of the outfit. And apparently, there was a whole thing where like they were just sweating and they stank. And the little people went on strike because they didn't want to be on top of there if they didn't have to be. So
1: I also want to say that it's quite fascinating that. The the people performing in the suits, the little people especially, are all people you know. They're all famous. Yeah. It's Debbie Carrington from Total Recall, Phil Fondacaro from Willow, and Tony Jeez. Cox from Bad Santa. Yeah, so it's wild. like, these are not... I mean, perhaps at the time they did not have the prestige they had, but these would go on to be some of the like top performers of the '90s and 2000s. Uh, stuck in a backpack <laughs> made of metal yeah. on some <laughs> random person's back.
2: You can, you know, for listeners, you can just Google some behind-the-scenes photos of this. These creatures—they're impressive. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I, you know, incredible. I like this film. It, it's super silly, whatever. It's it's not a masterpiece, but what you have to say is like, Stan Winston's creature effects are remarkable. Yeah. And the way they filmed it, where I think they're walking kind of backwards and then they, they reversed the film is really effective. So you get this very uncannyness to the movements. Um, and they only built two of the creatures and there's like one shot where you see a lot more and it's like a really interesting, innovative effect where they kind of did a graphic matching or something like that.
1: I think what you were getting at, there's this kind of concept through the 80s of the monster kid. It's often ascribed to yeah. as Joe Dante. And I think that that, it's funny because this movie kind of – so the 50s movies were like, you know, Forrest J. Ackerman's, like, famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Like, kids – these movies were terrible in the 50s. But kids would see this monster and be like, oh, man. And, and so many of them went on to be inspired. It's funny because the Monster Kid directors you, – you don't say, like, Carpenter and Cronenberger Monster Kids, even though they are Monster yeah. Kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but – I think that this film ends up kind of being like the 50s movie. It's because I really don't think that there's much worth to the movie around it. But I do think that the monsters are all. I think
0: the tonality doesn't necessarily work in the point of view. It took me about halfway through to figure out, oh, this is a kid's movie. And it's actually like a dream from his point of view, which is why people are acting the way they're acting and why he's saving the day as much as he is. And why
2: there's low camera angles. Like you're actually looking at adults filmed from below so that, you know, you kind of get that sense of this is... This is from the perspective of someone who might only be four feet tall, like an average totally, boy. Totally, totally,
1: and apparently very true to the original. Even that that annoying ending is, is like exactly what the original. And the
2: original, is. the kid that appears in the original, the star is actually like the sheriff or something. In this mm-hmm. version, there's a nice nod to it. I think coming back to the original, which is 1953, um, also called Invaders from Mars, and directed by William uh, Cameron Menzies, who was a very prolific director going back to the 19, to the teens, like silent film. It's not a good film. As far as like B films go, it's actually considered one of the the worst. And it was (laughs) rushed into production simply because uh, George Pal and Byron Haskins, uh, War of the Worlds was released in 1953. And I think they filmed, you know, the original of this film, like in a few weeks. So it's kind of very in keeping with the original not being very good, that this is got some of that kind of schlockiness, I think.
1: Yeah, there's a weird, I think to me, the thing that I would like to know, and I get the feeling that Toby Hooper wanted to do a straight movie, but Dan O'Bannon maybe mm-hmm. wanted more of the camp, just because I think I ascribe Dan O'Bannon to Return of the Living Dead, which is mm. such oh a good God. and campy movie. So good. And the fact that, like, to me, the good performances like Lorraine Newman, Louise Fletcher James Karen. and then sure, yeah. yeah.
2: From Return of the Living Dead.
1: People being sucked under the sand. A lot of aliens running around loose underneath the town. That's a little hard to swallow. And also uh what's his face from uh uh Bud Court, yeah. Bud Court is the same. We don't
0: know that much about them. We
2: don't
1: know why they're here. It's all right, boys. It's it's all right. How you know they're boys? Shut up. Like, I think that the people that are good are campy. Mm-hmm. Yes, A- they and, know what
0: movie they're in. They're having but fun. But the film
1: is not campy. And, and almost the kid would work as camp if... Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: Hunter Carson is... Uh, honestly, uh, this needs to anchor around the, the mm. child actor. And Hunter Carson is not good. And from what it sounds like from multiple interviews I have read, he did not want to be there.
1: No, yeah,
0: yeah. So that sounds yeah, challenging. I
1: mean, that one the the person that's written about it most is one of the effects people, Shannon Shea, has written multiple kind of articles about it. And yeah, that the one paints it. But again, Shannon Shea is like, listen, I've been on plenty of sets where kids don't learn their lines, so mm-hmm. I was happy with this kid because the takes were quick. Well, and he's but, he's um, acting opposite
2: yeah. his mom, that's kind of unique, yes. um. and is also meant to have a crush on the mm-hmm. character too,
1: which yeah, is very which is weird. weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it almost, I mean, uh, I, I would almost swap in Lorraine Newman there's a just because she gets it.
2: There's a real Amblin feel to this. Like, and I know, I think percent rumored that this was shopped to Spielberg um, before Toby Hooper. It just doesn't get pulled off. I guess that's no. what ends no. up happening is it's just, um, I really admire it for making it through the perspective of a child. But I just don't know where we can go with that, to be honest.
0: There's a lot of ambition, but not the skill. And I think um, it kind of goes with the same thing as Life Force, because Life Force is intended to be a love story to hammer horror, Mm -hmm. specifically quarter mass in the pit. Mm -hmm. And so both of these movies are love letters to genres that he loves, and you see that he gets to some of the tropes, but he doesn't totally understand how to bring that into a modern perspective and make everything work. Because I don't think he yeah. can figure out, is it meant to be camp? Is, do I play this straight? How do I play it? And he never really commits to one. It kind of becomes both at the same time. I will
2: say who's playing mega camp is Louise Fletcher as yes. the yeah. evil teacher. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. It's really effective, actually.
1: Look, he's bleeding. Heather.
2: You supervise while I take this uncontrollable young man to the school nurse, and I hope you need a tetanus shot, and so if you know if you think of this as a fantasy film that demonstrates how children view adults, how adults, including their parents their teachers, their authority figures, come off in a child's imagination, then it's effective. And then yeah. the kind of one-dimensionality of these characters is perfectly
0: fine. I just don't know how you make that entertaining. It's having the good kid at the center. It's because Hunter Carson's performance doesn't work. If you had the kid at the center that could like really make this make sense and like really genuinely be terrified and trying to figure stuff out. Um, Also, I think Cam, you're mentioning that like these people are just straight up zombies immediately, rather than like there's just something (laughs) slightly off about them. I think that would work a little better too.
1: An interesting kind of like path you can go down is uh, a film that the writer director says is heavily inspired by the original Invaders from Mars. Another monster. Kid uh, Don Coscarelli says that Phantasm is <gasps> Invaders from Mars, yeah. and it's the same. When you think about it, it's like yeah, it's yeah. a kid. It's all out of control. He can't control it. Everything's very dreamy, and it ends where it's like, is it a dream? Is it not a dream? Uh, and that yeah, movie's so great. That movie's great. So that's like yeah, that's there is a way to sublimate yeah,
0: right. what
1: what scared you or inspired you, and it's full of crazy creatures. Yeah, um, uh, not as good looking as these. I can't creatures, believe Stan but,
2: Winston uh, was filming Aliens. At the
0: same time as this,
1: <laughs> well,
0: he apparently uh, brought his kid on, his son, who I believe yeah. took over the effects house. This was one of his first jobs, schlepping things. He and was a teenager, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, having yeah. to do everything. So, I mean, <laughs> We're he was left... learning
1: that 1986 was the year of abusing your children <laughs> by forcing them to poor Brian Henson and uh, and now they both run their uh, their empires, they Sandwich do, and son runs the school. But yeah, I will, I will say, uh, like it's worth saying if you enjoy. Uh, Effects stuff. Uh, the Stan Winston School does great jobs, f- going through every single movie, mm-hmm. uh, both with video clips and with uh, remembrances of like what it was like working on them.
0: Now I mentioned this is Ken Russellian, and it struck me immediately when I was looking at the tunnels in the main base where like the Krang creature is and the big creatures, and I was like, "Oh, this is a vagina, mm-hmm. like or some sort <laughs> of like it's very much in the same alien sort of First realm." Canal. Yeah, hundred percent. And I was, and then I it took me a second, and I was like, "Hold on, is this the Masters of the Universe set?" And then I paused it and looked it up, and I was like, "It is the
2: Masters of the." I'm universe I'm very set. impressed by that. Thank you, Becky. Just to to push the vagina metaphor further, if I may. <laughs> um, something I've become well known for.
1: <laughs> something you love yeah. at this company. <laughs>
2: I would say from the back, the two sort of aliens look like ovaries. And so then you have the sure. crane, like the brain is sort of the uterus and you've got these ovaries <laughs> and there's and then the two tubes are the fallopian tubes. I am
0: with you on this metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I mean, this we'd is have wonderful. to ring up
1: the production designers. and I mean, everything, everything in design is either phallic or yonic. There's not much other option.
0: <laughs> oh, man. I think the thing that amazes me the most is that like – Toby Hooper, of course, was signed to the three-picture deal, and he started out by making Life Force with, like, mm-hmm. a good-sized budget.
1: Oh, yeah. it's the bi- I think the biggest budget, one of the biggest budgets Canon ever had, yeah. and and definitely probably the biggest Toby Hooper ever had.
0: Definitely. And it didn't make its money back, and then, so they mm-hmm. gave him slightly less to make Invaders from Mars, and again, it didn't make its money back. So they gave him even less when he was in pre-production um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We'll mm. get into, you know, the financial debacles there, which that eventually made its money back. Back, but did not do as well as they thought, which is why they did not sign him on for anything more. But I think there's a freneticness to all three of the films that makes mm. me wonder where Toby Hooper was as not just as an artist, but like as a human being.
1: Well, I mean, he's he's a very interesting guy because he's a real outsider. Mm-hmm. You know, he he ne- kind of never. This is the the highest budget, biggest deal, kind of quote unquote mainstream films he makes, and like his, more his, so
0: his... than P- Poltergeist.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, Poltergeist. Who knows? It's like back and forth. Yeah. on his how much he had control over that film yeah yeah i don't know it's like i mean he didn't conceptualize it as well at the very least so yeah. these were like his front to back but yeah it's also weird to me thinking how this film completely does not understand humor and camp whereas texas Chainsaw massacre 2 is like one of the best campy horror movies oh, there God, is i
2: love it so much it's pure but else. yeah i think
1: he kind of just went his own way you know He's a guy who likes to do what he likes to do. That's that's what it is. And, uh, yeah. And I think he probably never felt uh, like he had to please anybody. There's a good, uh, another uh, remembrance of the set. Somebody called him the Yosemite Sam of the DGA. <laughs> I, uh, and uh, they call him determined, easily aggravated, short memories, reactionary, funny, but very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> short memory. That, like, it sounds like he's getting mad about something he should have remembered.
0: <laughs> Reactionary is something that delights me. Just hearing stories about him on all of these sets where he was just like mainlining cigars and Dr. Pepper. And there's Dr. Pepper mm-hmm. in like shots of all of his movies because all the crew was just like, there was just one PA just assigned to continually bring him Dr. Pepper. <laughs> That's just what he right. did. We're going to be getting into Toby Hooper uh, way more when we get to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. That's coming up in a few weeks. But like, let's move on to our next film. When we come back, we're going to be looking at a movie that I feel was way ahead of its time. Was it? Was it? That's coming up after the break. Though Invaders from Mars was Toby Hooper's attempt at recreating a child's experience of the B-movie, Fred Decker's Night of the Creeps is a different comment on the genre. It's savvy, self-aware, and maybe a little too self-aware at times. It feels like something that should have come out in the wake of Wes Craven's Scream or Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead. I groaned when I realized the characters had the same last names as famous horror directors. One of them is even hyphenated Carpenter Hooper. Despite its comical tone, and I laughed out loud a few times, it also grossed me out in a few moments. And the only thing I think it didn't get right to reflect the B-movie experience is being boring so I could tune it out and make out with my partner. I liked this one a lot, but I do feel it's ahead of its time, which is why it didn't do as well. Let's talk Night of the Creeps. Yeah, I I really
2: love this film, Um, and I agree with you. I think it's ahead of its time. But just to give a sense of what this film's about, it's about a bunch of creeps. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, both in that, you know, the creeps are sluggish alien life forms similar to shivers and at the same time, also frat boys. But Mm. uh, the film opens in black and white, which I think is a it's a beautiful technique. And it opens in black and white in 1959. Where there's an alien experiment, and we do see the aliens, and these are not as good of aliens as the previous film we talked about, Invaders from Mars. Mm
1: -hmm. These
2: aliens look like if a knockoff off-brand E.T. toy had sex with another off-brand (laughs) knockoff toy from Ridley Scott's (laughs) Alien and then got sun bleached. It would look like this. But they have little bums. I love their little bums. Frowning
1: babies is what Fred Decker said he wanted. And it sure is a frowning baby. Lots of
2: baby fat, um, cute little bums anyway. But um, they implant on Earth these slug-like creatures that take over one's brain.
1: And one of
0: them goes rogue, don't they? Like Yeah, that's it kinda seems what like
1: happens? there's like, a terrorist that is purposefully stealing the plug. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> but you don't know because they go full Skeksis and they don't use yeah. any actual language.
1: Yeah.
2: And it, it opens with an axe murderer who's escaped from an asylum who has one of these in his brain. I'm not sure. I can't remember.
1: Yes. No, no, he doesn't He doesn't. So that's the, the thing. The he doesn't. boyfriend. He's just crazy. Yeah, yeah it's the, the boyfriend. Yeah, he just murders the girl and then gets caught etc it's a complicated plot actually and this is
2: witnessed by a police officer who's in love with the girl the girl's on a date with Mm -hmm. a jock and the police officer is going to be the main character basically uh many years later in this film
1: yeah Um, 30 minutes later in the film Uh, and
2: so yeah they bury they bury the body they i'm sorry they freeze the body of the boyfriend who has the slug in its head
1: the government seems to know that this exists sure (laughs) (laughs)
2: cryogenics are very important in 1986 flash forward to pledge week 1986 at a college and you have um, two dorks Mm -hmm. who want to pledge for like you know the jock like the the top um, fraternity and the thing the frat boy, and I want to say the head frat boy here is named Brad. His license plate is Bradster, if you want to have a <laughs> sense of what kind of character this is. Uh, he jokes around, is like, well, if you can break, if you can get us a cadaver, if you can break a body out of the University Science Center, you can come into the, the fraternity. Unfortunately, the kid's... Go too far, they do this, and it's the frozen body with a slug in its head. It unfreezes, mm-hmm. and now the creeps are everywhere. There's a sorority house with uh, lovely Ms. Ms. Cronenberg, who's like the, <laughs> the woman that um, this one guy's crushing on. Yeah, it's basically if you put every B, b- movie into a blender:
1: it's aliens and it's zombies. It's aliens, it's altogether. zombies. Uh, serial killer Cereal that killer, comes back to life as a zombie.
0: Maniacs got, escaped from mental hospital. got Dick yeah. Miller yeah. in it because if you're yeah. playing, yeah. okay, this is the part where we I have to get Dick into Miller. this uh, because Dick Miller is playing the character of Walter Paisley. Now, Walter Paisley, if people don't mm. know, is mm-hmm. a character that appears like repeatedly, starting in yes. a bunch of Corman movies and then moving forward, and he always shows up as this character and this whole other world of like who Walter Paisley actually is. If he's a time traveler, like what is it's actually kind of fascinating Mm
1: -hmm. we uh we would know from uh a year in film that walter paisley meets his ultimate demise at the hands of the chopping mall robot (laughs) as a janitor in the titular chopping mall
0: (laughs) it's just such a great thing yeah because everybody loves Dick. i
2: i love Mm -hmm. this film because to me the real creeps are the frat boys regardless of whether they have been infested by alien slugs or not If I knew you were gonna pull a downer like this, I never even would have told you. But that's
1: what I get for going with a fucking psych major, isn't it?
2: And there's some really like, I mean, there's some lines that you would imagine are in there, but they're effective. When like, I think at one point, at one point, the the final girl is like, killing off all these frat boys, and she's like, "Don't you understand? No means no." Like, there's a lot (laughs) of sort of date rape sort of metaphors in this, and and really the creeps are these like just total losers like bradster when bradster gets zombified um his girlfriend doesn't realize it and like <laughs> yeah. she leads him to the deck and breaks one up of the with best parts yeah so good
1: <laughs> there's and, a long regular scene where he's a zombie yeah and
2: this stars tom atkins who i am a huge fan of um as the police officer in the 1950s who witnesses his ex-girlfriend being murdered he's now a detective and you know, knows exactly what's happening because he's witnessed this in the past.
0: And he has a catchphrase that is used mm-hmm. specifically throughout the whole thing. In fact, the making of documentary is called Thrill Me, because that's mm-hmm. what he says when he answers the phone or he walks into a crime scene where he's like, Thrill Me. And I love this. This movie was so cult hit that he got approached by a woman in a grocery store who saw him, freaked out and yelled, Thrill Me! And then handed him a bunch of promotional pencils from her business where she had been using <laughs> Thrill Me to promote Damn. her business on these pencils. It's amazing.
1: <laughs> I was just going to say, I love that Fred Decker says that the uh, origin of the script, like, because he's like, obviously the script is a hundred different ideas. Yeah. I just yeah. mooshed together. But he's like, the first idea he had was a guy picking up the phone and saying, thrill me.
2: <laughs> thrill me. Yeah, that does not usually a screenplay make. But somehow, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, I, I have to say, I think Thrill Me is a good line. But I love when he's shooting the zombies and he goes, it's Miller time. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I like, yeah. what? True. I mean, I my favorite part of that character is the incredibly good sequence where he, it, it's kind of quickly... Revealed the the kid comes to his door. Mm -hmm. He's kind of just sitting there weirdly, and the and the kid comes to his door, and you see him remove all this tape from his door, and you're like, "What?" And then it's kind of slowly showing that he had he was gonna kill. Yeah, the other door's open, and then he decides it's so good that yeah, it's just such a good character moment that is like you know it's it's show don't tell where this guy had completed what he thought was his thing and he was going to just kill himself until then th- he has to take part in Act 3, <laughs> which is awesome.
2: Yeah, if, if Hunter Carson is terrible in Invaders from Mars and might arguably destroy the likability of that film, this film could have gone that way, I think, and is absolutely anchored by wonderful performances um, of Tom Atkins mm. as well as the, the two uh,
0: leads who play the friends, the two male friends. Yeah. Jason Lively and Steve Marshall, and I love and, yeah. and, Cynthia, and Cynthia. She's too, great. I yeah. Think. great. Yeah, it's great chemistry across the board. Um, and that's Jill Whitlow. Uh, Steve Marshall, mm-hmm. who plays JC, who's the who's on crutches, which is an interesting aspect yeah. of the character. Yeah, he is so charming and yep. so funny, and for a character that could easily have been your right off best friend, you are mm-hmm. actually upset when he dies because he leaves this mm-hmm. like yeah. little sad message, being like, "One of them got in my mouth. I'm a goner. Sorry, mm-hmm. bud." And it's just like, Aah! but I liked you. I liked you so much. There's a lot. Lot of readings yeah. of
2: his character being queer and i'm undecided yeah. on that i don't think fred decker wrote this no. with a with that queer in character in mind
1: yeah think... yeah it's fun it's it's interesting because it's like yeah is this movie super progressive or uh, just just <laughs>
2: or people reclaiming this like the
0: baba duke yeah it's like
2: yeah. baba shook right like it, yeah. it really is an afterthought of a reading but it works can we come back to tom atkins i have a bit of a of story course we can mm. yes go for sure. it it's in my canon of embarrassing stories um <laughs> <laughs> I started an internship uh, when I was doing my master's in film preservation at then called the George Eastman House. It's the palace of film. Uh, first day of my internship, uh, they were giving a tour to some people who were presenting a film that night at the movie theater, the Dryden. They asked me what I was doing. My task was I was writing numbers on thousands of Warner Brothers film stills from the 1930s. And one man took a really like keen interest in these stills. Like he sat down beside me, was looking at them. Flash forward to lunch. It's your first day of your internship, and I'm I'm really nervous. And it's a tiny cafeteria. These people who were on the tour were like at a table and I was eating by myself. And this nice older man invited me to, you know, come and eat. And I was like, why not? This was the guy who was like really into the film stills. I did not know I was having lunch with Tom Atkins and Fred Decker. Uh, <laughs> I had never seen any of their films. This is about 12, 13 years ago. I no idea. And I didn't know they were, I didn't understand that one was a director and one was an actor. I didn't know that the film I had bought a ticket for, which uh, was this film was going to have them in it for that night. Uh, And Tom, I asked Tom Atkins what he did for a living. (laughs) (laughs) I remember Fred Decker's reaction. being I didn't know who, I didn't care about Fred Decker. Um, Mm. And he was so nice. When I say he was so nice, he was the loveliest person. He was like, oh, I'm an actor. I didn't ask him, what have you been in? He wanted to just ask me about film preservation. He was so fascinated by what he had seen in the film vaults about those Warner Brothers stills. He had a really good knowledge of 1930s film. um, So he knew some of the stills Mm -hmm. I was working on. And we just spent the 45 minute lunch talking about film history in the 30s and did not, it's probably the only time Fred Decker and Tom Atkins have done a horror event and not been asked any questions about horror films. (laughs) Um, And I only found out later who they were. I remember calling my boyfriend at the time and being like, yeah, the guys that are presenting this film tonight called monster squad. uh, I've never (laughs) seen it. And he was like, horrified that I had asked Tom Atkins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were doing the Fog, Monster Squad, and Night of the Creeps. He was oh, horrified wow. when I was like, Yeah, oh no, I asked him what he did for a living. And now I love Drive Angry. I love all the Tom Atkins films and by the way, I have such a fun memory of yeah. him. Yeah.
1: I mean he's a he's an interesting guy because he got famous when he was a bit quite yeah. a bit older than you normally would as a celebrity. And he got famous for like being a cop on the Rockford Files. Oh, wow, I and know. then it essentially he's he's like what I think we will, in the fullness of time, understand Elijah Wood to be where it's like he's a guy who just he liked genre <laughs> movies. And the minute they were like, you can star in whatever, he's like, horror <laughs> and then he just continued yeah. to do it. You know, he's in I mean, he's in other stuff, but but the best stuff I'm, he does. I'm almost glad I can't redo that movies. lunch
2: because it's better to have not asked him anything about Night of the Creeps because now I have so many questions. Mm. Um And he says that this is his favorite film, and his favorite role
0: which I think makes sense to me. Totally. Well, let's talk about Fred Decker for a second because this is obviously him being a fanboy. This is the first film he uh, wrote mm-hmm. and directed. Um, he has a couple short films before this. He wrote the story for the film House, which is a movie I really like. I think it's just wild. Um, where yeah. people will remember it's like the disembodied zombie hand touching the doorbell for the poster. Yeah.
1: and ironically they blame that their poster was too much like the house poster oh, for Night oh, of the Creeps. Lord and that's why well, part of what ruined oh, their marketing okay.
0: I get it It's uh, and there's three different versions of this poster as well he clearly loves the genre he of course the next thing he would do is the monster squad which is the take on
1: yeah the movie about exactly <laughs> <Kids>. and it <laughs> is a riff on
0: universal monsters so you mm-hmm. have like another yeah. deep love Um, I do not think monster squad holds up as well as this one does there's a bunch of stuff in monster squad I'm like mm, no but I understand people have very strong nostalgia Ch- Tom Noonan to it. as Frankenstein is pretty wonderful is what (laughs) Wonderful. I will give you that. Yeah, there's just too much too many homophobic slurs for my particular taste. So yeah, not not my thing. But I think um, then you see kind of what he went on for his for his career as a writer. And you're looking at stuff like Robocop 3, which he completely disowns.
1: Well, Robocop 3, I was gonna say is famous for ruining everyone's careers. It was uh, I believe it was meant to be theatrical, and it was so ruinous, it went straight Uh to video. Uh, But it's also why Frank Miller didn't adapt any of his comics to films for almost twenty years. Uh it took Robert Rodriguez essentially like convincing him with Sin City to ever adapt any of his comics. Not that I I mean I my heart only slightly (laughs) Frank Miller because he's a maniac (laughs) jerk. Uh but uh like it's kind of fascinating because yeah his his experience with Fred Decker and Fred Decker even blames himself uh for ruining uh frank miller's experience but it was so bad on robocop 3 he essentially quit hollywood for a long
0: time wow wow. well he's also done a bunch of tales from the crypt mm-hmm. which i love that show just so holds up those, those such a are good that's one of my too. in the background shows so i mean clearly you've got another case of a fanboy who understands the tropes and then understands how to make it modern which is why i put it in the same yeah. kind of context as like edgar wright like this is very shawn of the dead yeah, to me yeah
2: yeah
1: yeah, and he's super close oh, yeah. with Shane Black, too. Like, they, they kind of go back and forth working together so that the More than that,
0: that, he lived in a house when they went to UCLA together with Shane Black and Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, who do uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent hmm. Adventure and the, all the, the Bill the and Ted's. The cinephile fraternity. Um, <laughs> that's right. Their house was called yeah. The Pad of Guys.
1: Wow. Not great writing for that house name. And
0: though. I love how he just throws stuff. To go. He's like, yeah, yeah, so I was at The Pad of Guys. It's a little strange. Weird. Yeah, but, you know, young,
1: But, yeah, I, I think... You can see it's very fascinating the way he, like, puts together the pastiche. And I do want to briefly shout out, weirdly, there's a Canadian film that <laughs> that just because I love mm-hmm. that opening that does, like, ten different things. There's a Canadian film the same year called Killer yes. Party that also does where it starts off in a movie and then mm-hmm. the movie is on a screen at a drive-in oh, and cool. then the drive-in is a music video that then a frat, frat is watching. And I'm like, oh, hey, it's, it's great that two movies did that. But I also want to just say that, like, the pastiche – Like, I can get the pastiche a bit in in Night of the Creeps and all the different things. But, like, for instance, I just realized watching it this time, there's, like, a leitmotif of... uh... With especially Tom Atkins' character of the platters smoke gets in your eyes, playing oh. whenever kind of bad stuff happens because that's his girlfriend. And as much as that's a big hit from the 50s, it is also the main kind of romantic leitmotif in American graffiti. So, on top of being a pastiche of 50s stuff, it's also like a pastiche of the 70s yeah. remembrance of 50s stuff. Watching was that like 50s big sequence, that we talked about I was before. reminded of
2: Twin Peaks The Return and that very famous yeah. episode. 8th oh, totally. Episode where we go back to the 50s and it's black and white and music very similar to that i don't hmm. believe it is the platters maybe it is is Isn't.
1: It might be. Honestly, there is a great article I suggest people look up uh, on RogerEbert.com called The Smoke Gets in Your Eyes Cinematic Universe (laughs) (laughs) and the various kind of like, because it's been used significantly in multiple films since the 1930s. It's a song from the 30s, I guess. So there's like Fred Astaire singing This is one (laughs) of the movies
0: that I'm so glad it came out on DVD at a time when they were still doing director's commentaries and like making little like making of DVD featurettes for things. Um, Because this one is Especially mm. getting to see all the special effects because there's a lot of really cool <laughs> effects in here. I mean, the little the little wormy oh, yeah. guys are really gross, and because they're practical, are awesome. The
1: head splitting open is very good. The
0: yeah. axe murderer comes back to life 35 years later. That, it's oh a great, yeah, great yeah, puppet, puppet zombie. zombie, totally fantastic. And I love that the house of the frat guys is called the Betas, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And uh, all mm-hmm. of the guys in the frats are the FX guys oh, in order yeah. to save money, <laughs> so that they could because they could cast yes. their own heads. Exactly. I wouldn't have yeah. to pay actors to come in for the time to do it. And they were like, well, I'll just mold each other's heads and do it. And they had a great time. So I'm like, that's just a delight. <laughs> yeah, this seemed like a very yeah. fun
2: shoot for a script that was written in something like
0: eight days. I'm amazed
2: at how much joy kind of comes out of this as a horror film. Like it's a joyful horror film about creeps, which <laughs> is great.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I also think it's like kind of fascinating. Like everybody seems to love the experience for. And Fred Decker was incredibly yep. young when he made it, which is also kind of fascinating because it's a logistical mm-hmm. nightmare. I mean, we we talk about Toby Hooper and his crazy one. Like this is as much effect almost. But also, it's kind of fascinating that like some people went on. Uh, like the two, the two leads are in an early Roland Emmerich film mm-hmm. called Ghost mm-hmm. Chase. Mm-hmm together again they are once again paired so as much as this film what we can talk maybe a bit about it had a very botched marketing and release yeah. and and is a very cult movie it was missing from uh, like it wasn't a part of the horror canon until kind of the 2000s yeah. because people just didn't see
2: their label scream factory are really yeah. instrumental in making this more accessible and, and making sure the director's cut exists and is kind of the preferred version
1: But it's like it's interesting that I think it leaked out to the industry that people liked this and these people were good. And like so even though the film didn't make a huge impact. It made an, enough of an impact yeah. in the industry. Yeah. This also has
0: an alternate ending, which is sad, where there's a dog in this that is infected. And at the end, the dog comes up to um, Cynthia and infects her. And that's how the movie ends. So it's like it's starting all mm. over again. Which she's and a really great glad... final
2: girl. So I hate that that yeah. ending theatrically was undone because she's a really, really strong final girl. Yeah.
1: I mean, I feel like the implication of the other ending is that the the, the things are just going to get into the graveyard and yes. make a, yeah, another but, zombie but invasion too. But they don't too, infect so. her. Like, you
0: don't – I mean, there's still potential yeah, they'd be sure. okay. So that is one of the things where it's like, all right, there's more coming. Here's the sequel. I but- guess if you love pets mm-hmm. like I do, there, there's both a cat and a
2: dog in this film, two scenes with uh, special effects very disturbing, very upsetting. That's-
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, the, the dog's still out there infecting people. Uh, Brad, that's how Brad oh, Bradster, gets got.
0: Yeah. There are so many stories out there of actors who are, like, not necessarily prominent actors, some are, but some aren't, who just got careers because they just happened to be friendly with a famous actor. So uh Steve Marshall was pa on a movie and became really good buddies with Robert Downey Jr. In and Yugoslavia. Like, ah, in Yugoslavia. And he's like, I think mm-hmm. I'm just gonna, you know, come hang out in L.A. He's like, yeah, yeah, come live with me. We'll get some acting work you'll be able to pay your bills and i'm just like because that's how it works you just make friends with robert He's canadian right i
2: I could be wrong but his dad is was a very famous canadian film producer working in yugoslavia
1: in the 80s yes he is canadian i believe he's actually returned to canada as well huh it's also like on top of all the we talked about Tales from the Crypt. Obviously, it is also incredibly EC Comics mm-hmm. influenced. I th- I feel like that aliens mm-hmm. plus zombies is a real classic EC Comics. Or I also I feel I feel like gross uh, horror comics. I highly recommend Italian <laughs> horror comics. They get uh, they get a little obviously stomach turningly erotic. <laughs> like designs, many Italian but, things. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, but yes, fumetti as they're called. Uh, they are odd. Uh but yeah I think that you really see the influence of tales from the crypt it's growing obviously we have creep show uh at the same time kind of going around yeah. with Stephen King so you're slowly seeing that influence infect more Atkins and more stuff yeah but it's a
0: pretty obvious trend that like people who grow up seeing one thing then they start making their own versions of it later and then you see it again so like these mm. trends do show up another like say 10 15 years down the line of people who grew up watching that thing want to make their own version yeah. of it mm-hmm.
1: And I think you're seeing, for instance, if you're talking about making your own version of it, uh, the film Slither, which is just Night of the Creeps yep. by James Gunn, uh, is is like Cronenberg plus That's Night true. of the Creeps. Uh, it's very much inspired by uh, that. It has the same little slug dudes. It has some very similar uh, instances, but also is a twist on it. And I think that you see uh, these 80s movies coming back in the kind of 2020.
0: One, I think we're definitely recommending both these movies in a way- in. Invaders from Mars will be a specific audience, but Night of the Creeps is just super fun. Like that one's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. May I say too, I think I've
2: established, I'm not a huge horror fan. Um, I I am (laughs) forced to watch many horror films for my job (laughs) and I'm getting there. But I I think if you have someone in your life who's maybe like, can't handle a lot of horror, this is a very good gateway drug. I think even as a kid, this would have been, it's just so loving and so campy that even when there's real scares, you're you're along for the ride i really really
0: think this is a good one to introduce to people who might claim they don't like horror agreed agreed and it sits on the sci-fi end of it which more, more people find palatable once again alicia fletcher thank you so much
2: thank you becky i also want to shout out tom atkins's line in night of the creeps where he says there's good news and bad news the good news is your dates are here the bad news they're dead <laughs> <It's> like, no
0: <laughs> one could deliver that line like that good except yes. for him. cameron maitland thank you so much
1: thanks uh, i will also shout out what i know to be alicia's favorite monster kid movie from a 1986 it critters so which is a, a lot like it suits this we could say that there's whole you know spookies troll critters area but it's not really worth talking about but yeah, yeah critters i've
0: never actually seen critters i have to add critters to my list okay
1: listen critters 2 yeah critters, critters 2 is the better uh, ghoulies 2 also the better, <laughs> but uh, you know give them a whirl
0: All right. And you can join us again next week where we look at a movie about a bunch of burnouts in a parking lot that is eerily similar to my growing up in Alberta. We also have a very special guest. Comedian podcaster Graham Clark is joining us. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoy the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at HollywoodSuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Mains. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.